Davis. All right, Jay, good to see you again today. What's going on, Paul? Well, let's go into um, Romeo and Juliet, the next act. But before we do, let's open with a poem, um, as we are wont to do. Um, I've got a poem for us today. Um, and this one I started quoting in the woods uh, two nights ago. And my son and I were out for a walk after dark with the dog and just chatting. I looked up in the sky and there were the stars. Um, and I think it relates to our uh, star-crossed lovers, Romeo nice. and Juliet. So let me throw it out there. Uh, this is one of the lesser-known uh, poems by Robert Frost. Um, he's got some very philosophical poems. And uh, this is one of them uh, called Stars. It's one of my favorites. How countlessly they congregate o'er our tumultuous snow, which flows and shapes as tall as trees when wintry winds do blow. As if in keenness for our fate, our faltering few steps on to white rest and a place of rest, invisible at dawn. And yet with neither love nor hate, those stars, like some snow-white, Minerva's snow-white marble eyes, without the gift of sight. Stars by Robert Frost. I love that last moment in the poem. That's great. It's a nice turn. Yeah. I like that he evokes, you go out at night and look up on the stars, and there they are, all staring down at us as if they're interested in our yeah. faltering few steps on. Why should they yeah. care? It reminds me of Ye uh, Yeats's poem, When You Are Old and Gray and Full of Sleep. It ends with the stars. I'd like, I don't know, maybe I'll bring that for next time. It, it's not the same thing, but it reminds me of it. Yeah, that might be good. Uh, might be good to hear. And yet, with neither love nor hate, those stars, like Minerva's snow white marble eyes without the gift of sight, they can't yeah. see. They can't see either. Yeah. But I don't know. I was thinking about it. I'm not sure exactly how to put that together, together with Romeo and Juliet, but I'll just throw it out there as, yeah, a, that's cool. as an evocative opener. Yeah, it's nice. All right, we're on to um, to Act Four. Uh, not one of the bigger acts. Act Three that we did last time is uh, a, a lot more, a lot more of an act. Um, but it's Act Four. We're going act by act, um, and so uh, we'll do it. You know, we'll do our duty here. Then we'll hit Act Five next, and maybe do a wrap up too. Um, but uh, so we're in Act Four today. This might be quick, but we're going to do. I mean, are you are you still on to do our three our three questions? I have done my homework Ooh. like a good teacher. All right, <laughs> done it in time. You didn't do it just like, or at least Wikipedia said I did my homework <laughs> like it. No, I did. <laughs> Great. So we'll do our questions. The obvious and crucial, the subtle but poignant, and then the lingering or it may be nagging uh, mm. questions uh, that, that you have, whichever way it goes. Um, I don't know. You want to start us off, Jay? Act four, Romeo and Juliet. How, sure. how, how do we start talking about this? I, I think I was telling you at school today that um, I, I had a little bit of time last night. And it was weird. I, I, I reread Act Four a while ago. And then I was just poking around my bookshelf. And in the commentaries I have of Romeo and Juliet, Act Four is ignored or skimmed over pretty clearly you couldn't find much on it um and i wasn't looking to cheat paul I'll just be honest with you i wasn't looking for how <laughs> yeah, let's just stop Brooke right here what? <laughs> <laughs> what i've always said i mean no but um so i think there's plenty to talk about i think it's act four of a shakespeare play which means he's had to find a way to descend quickly to the end in this case to a tragedy yeah. But things have to be set in place to move quickly now. The momentum has to happen. Yeah. Um, so I think there's one line I want to point out and then a soliloquy I want to point out. All right. Before As, you jump into that, can I yeah. ask you a question based on something you said? Yeah. How much How much commentary do you read on, on this? I don't know. In that's general a, no, or in this play? Good. How do you incorporate that into your head? I think as a younger teacher who maybe because of insecurity and inexperience probably felt like he had to be smart in front of the kids. And that was like a concern, you know? Yeah. I probably thought about it too much. I think my first job when I teach something, particularly a thing I haven't taught before is to read it really closely and honor my questions and journal and just, you know, pay attention to the text itself. Cause if I, if I start with commentary, I feel the same when you assign research papers. If you don't have the kids think seriously first about what they believe to be there, the research paper is just going to be a collection of other people's thoughts, kind of like nerd Tetris, just fitting stuff in, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But I do think 
while I'm teaching, you know, Romeo and Juliet to ninth graders, they don't have to know what Harold Bloom at Yale thought or Marjorie Garber at Harvard thinks or yeah. Harold Goddard or Isaac Asimov. Like, name the big ones, yeah, right? right. For me, it just kind of fills in the rooms in my imagination to know what these really smart people, how they read. Right. Because they, they see resonances and echoes where I don't necessarily. A lot of times it's just they point, to, they point out questions I may not have thought of. Um, but it's not, not necessarily to, um, like I said, when I was younger, it was just to, you know, to be smart, right. to feel confident, right. you know, but I did, I think it's good. I mean, I, I think my thoughts about Romeo and Juliet are valid. Right. Um, what's in the text needs to be, I, I, here's the big thing. I need to spend more time with the play than I do with other people talking about the play. Yeah. Number yeah. one. Right. But I do want to. I find the certain readers of Shakespeare helpful to me. Yeah. And I revisit them pretty regularly, but without this obsessive feeling of, I need them to unlock it. I just like to notice. I like to, to see what they notice. Right. Right. That's all. It's yeah. I'm nerd. Like I came down on this. My approach in the classroom is I, I heard myself giving this speech to students over and over again, you know, stop looking at helps. Don't look at spark. I don't care about anything else you can find online. I want to hear what those people have to say. Sure. I want to hear what we have to say. I want your, you know, like encouraging them to bring their authentic unadorned reading to the room. And so I'm asking them to do this, you know, to walk through this mm -hmm. uh, without, you know, quoting, um, and so then I thought, you know, I think I should do the same thing too. If I think it's true for them, like there's a way in which, you know, I felt like that, that applied to me. So I, 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 me too, you know, early, early on in my career, I felt like I had to read all the things, but I, I stopped doing that and I just read and read and I've purposely avoided looking up some things for years, more than 10 years. I have some questions from the Odyssey, which maybe we'll do in the future. I yeah. hope we do that. I just am not going to look up because yeah, I can't wait to figure like to land on something right. at least in, in, in my, you know, in, in my own head. Sure. And I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose that discovery. I don't want to lose that sure. question to someone, someone else, you know, who, who, who can answer. Yeah, I, I'm just going to throw this out. I think this should be a separate podcast. Yeah. Episode of like you start a book and you're a teacher. What are the what's the order of operations? Yeah. You know what I mean? What comes first? <laughs> yeah, really. Right. I don't think this gets discussed. How those of you listening who are teachers, how many meetings have you been to in the last ten years where this thing is discussed? Yeah. Like how do you organize how you think about a book yeah. in a way that's authentic yet honors the expertise of other people? Like, I've never you know, I've right. never been there. And so you know, that might be really good to do. You know, and that would be good. And that, you know, something that really inspired me, I went up to Phillips Exeter Academy to their summer institute one year, years ago, and it was on the Harkness Method, Socratic yeah. discussion thing, right? But they sent us into a math room, you know, to see, you know, we're humanities teachers. It was a humanities summer institute, but they sent us in a math room and a science room to see how this plays out. You know, how do you do Socratic discussions yeah. on, you know, cell structure or something? And it actually was, it was brilliant. But one of the things I, I noticed was a side note was that um, they showed us uh, a book that was, if I'm remembering this right, that Algebra 1 at Phillips Exeter was, is a set of problems. It is a, it is a little book that they copy themselves on a photo, photocopy machine with a staple folded in half. And you could hold it up and say, this is Algebra 1. This is a set of representative problems, you know, whatever, five of each of the kinds. And when you can solve these problems, then you are Algebra 1 competent, mm -hmm. you know. And you may have to solve, you know, scores of related problems, right. do back, you know, whatever. And and that actually inspired me in my approach to, to, to literature. Yeah. Like, there's nothing to Google, really, if you're trying to, to learn algebra and learn to do these representative problems. Um, and same with the books. There are sets of books, strong books, whatever books your teachers are putting in, in front of you are, are probably really strong text. That's the set of problems. And when you can think through these and understand them mm -hmm. and appreciate them in a level, in a way that's yeah. represented to you, then you're, you're thinking literarily, right? You're right. ninth grade competent for, sure. you know, for literature, 11th right. grade competent. I don't know. I was kind of using that as a model. Yeah. I really like that. I think I've gone all over the place in my career on this question. Yeah. And, right. and, um, you know, and I always have to be aware that what excites me isn't necessarily what my students need to hear right now. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Which is yeah. one of the benefits of right. a dialogue-based right. situation. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But you're inviting them in. Like you're asking yeah, yeah. them to do it. And right. you're like, all right, you had to read X last night. All right, let's yeah. go. I want to hear it. You know, what, I think with the most difficult books I teach, I'm not good at that. So that's something yeah. I, I'd like to, let's promise each other to have an episode. All right, let's do this. Yeah. We're going to this because I want to think about this more. Yeah. I think that's yeah. really good. Cause I'm not, yeah. I'd like to look into and think through the other options. I know where I've landed, but I, I haven't thought a lot about the things I'm not doing. The other yeah. Time. Well, maybe, well, maybe we can do like, instead of theorizing, pick a, pick a poem. Yeah. Kind of a great poem. <laughs> Pick two great poems and have, that we don't know really well. Like yeah, we'll promise right. each other. It's kind of cold. And yeah. one will do inside out, and one will do sort of traditional guided experts. Yeah. Advice, and maybe we can process how that went for us. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud. I think that'd be nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. That sounds good. All right. So act four. I mean, this, not- by the way, for those listening, is exactly what Paul and my day is like. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, the when, only difference is the bell hasn't rung. There aren't kids sitting right. there with no teacher. We share a classroom, and yeah. there's many classes that start with Paul and I still talking about the books. <laughs> right, we just tell them to be quiet. Right. Sit we still, we're and they really mind waiting because they're dying for my class to start. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a, they're, it's they're a really frustrated. You know. All right, Act Four. So, we have other people waiting right now. Podcast that's right. list. And hey, I counted them up. These the Act Four does have the fewest lines. It yep. doesn't have the fewest scenes. It has the fewest lines. Four hundred and twelve lines. That's um, pretty small. So yeah, there's uh, we, we might be able to sum this up. All right, but you were saying you had two places we were going. Where are we going? So Act Four, Scene One. I, I found this pretty interesting. We've been talking a lot about Juliet's agency, Juliet's strength. Mm-hmm. This is a little tiny line. Um, Friar Lawrence has this insane plan. And it strikes me that Friar Lawrence isn't trapped. Friar Lawrence has options. So okay. right now, you know, Juliet is, is forced in a corner. She has to marry Paris on Thursday. She's, she's already mm-hmm. married. That's an issue. Right. Um, Friar Lawrence could fess up and go to, you know, the Capulets and explain what happened. Obviously, it wouldn't be the same play, and that's not the point. But I'm just saying logically from his yeah. perspective, he could do that. So instead, he has the, two, the 42-hour potion. Um, you know, we're trying to get COVID vaccines. I wonder if the 42 hour potion is, is available at the pharmacy. So anyway, it's obviously she's not, it's not like she's read the play before. So will this kill me? Do I trust this guy? Right. So here's this thing that makes her look dead. She's going to be put in a vault with all of her dead relatives. It's horrifying. Mm. One, one line response, line 123. Give me, give me, tell me not of fear. So she yeah. repeats the demand yes. and then just basically. So I just think that's a really, really interesting. She's a part of the decision and is, is operating like completely without fear. So I don't want to go on and on about it. I just thought yeah. that was cool. But in terms of the essential point, um, I think it's act four, scene three. One of the longest speeches of the play, I believe. Okay. It's uh, Juliet's soliloquy. It's yeah. right after her mother and the nurse <laughs> exit. Juliet has a potion, and I'm going to read just key parts of it, if that's okay. That'd be great. So it's line 15, act 4, scene 3. Juliet's alone. Farewell. Okay, now here we go. God knows when we shall meet again. Yeah. I have a faint cold fear thrills through my veins that almost freezes up the heat of life. I'll call them back again to comfort me. Nurse, what should she do here? My dismal scene I needs must act alone. Come, vile. It's that great Shakespeare stuff where there's tons of moments in Shakespeare where it looks like there's improv, like she's thinking this. Yeah. There's dashes and there's pauses, right? (laughs) What if this mixture did not work at all? Shall I be married then tomorrow morning? No, no, no. This I shall forbid. Lie thou there. What if it be a poison which the friar subtly administered to have me dead? She's asking all the right questions all by herself. Right. Lest in this marriage he should be dishonored because he's married me before to Romeo. I fear it is. And yet... Methinks it should not, for he hath still been tried a holy man. How? How? If when I am laid into the tomb, I wake before the time that Romeo come to redeem me. There's a fearful point. Mm. Shall I not then be stifled in the vault? To whose foul mouth no healthsome air breathes in, and there die strangled before my Romeo comes? Or, if I live, is it not very like the horrible conceit of death and night? together with the terror of the place as in a vault, an ancient receptacle where for this many hundred years the bones of all my buried ancestors are packed, where bloody Tybalt, yet but green in earth, lies festering in his shroud. 
where, as they say, as some hours of the night, spirits resort, alack, alack. It is not like that I, so early waking, what with loathsome smells and shrieks like mandrakes torn out of the earth that living mortals hearing them run mad, or if I wake, shall I not be distraught, environed with all these hideous fears and madly play with my forefather's joints and pluck the mangled <laughs> Tybalt from his shroud, and in this rage, with some great kinsman's bone as with a club, dash out my desperate brains? Yeah. Oh, look, methinks I see my cousin's ghost seeking out Romeo that did spit his body upon a rapier's point. Stay, Tybalt. She's seeing a ghost. The, again, it, it's Juliet has moments like this. There's no other moments in the play like that. Romeo never thinks like this. Yeah. She, yeah, yeah. She, it's one of those Shakespeare moments where he has, he has the significant actor think all the thoughts she has to think because the audience is thinking them. What if the potion does this? What if the potion doesn't work and you got to get married the next day to this idiot parent? What if you wake up and you're surrounded by dead people and you're going to suffocate? And then it goes into the specificity of the bones and the joints and the rotting and the smells. And <laughs> I just find not only her strength and fortitude in agreeing with the friar, but that she doesn't mindlessly just take the potion. That there's a moment of thought and a series of thoughts. Right. Right. And I just, Juliet's thinking is to me the most interesting thing in Romeo and Juliet. Mm. So that was that speech was the essential point to me. There is no doubt in my mind she's ready to roll now. Yeah. And that moment could have been missed. You could have just had her drink. I mean, that could have happened off stage, right? Yeah. Thanks to the they got married off stage. Like the marriage, right? right. They don't yeah, have the yeah. marriage. That doesn't happen. Um, their honeymoon happens off stage, you know. Um mm -hmm. Uh, but instead, it give, it's a moment that, as you say, uh, that, 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 that the drama takes advantage of to put Juliet's consciousness, her mind, on stage for us, which is what we want. Every time you hear it, you know, you want to hear more. Yeah. Um, that's good. So obvious and crucial, uh, Juliet's conscious, Juliet's thinking, Juliet's mm. yeah, able to contemplate. You know, mine was really related, um, too, and I kind of went to the same, uh, the same places, uh, but I put it as the obvious, trying to put it in like a pithy, obvious thing um, that 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 still is striking, obvious and crucial is that Juliet. And so I put it in this way. Juliet is not afraid to die. Mm. Juliet is not <clears throat> afraid to die. And that's that's in the lines. Right. That's just you know, like, yes, of course. But um, but that's a crucial point. Um, one, in the way that you laid it out and she has. And, and it's not a childish lack of fear of death. That is uh, one who hasn't thought about what death means. Like you said, she goes through the things. I, I could be a tool for Ireland's could be using me and just killing mm -hmm. me off. How horrible to die that way. Or this horror scene that's painted in the, you know, in the sepulcher right. of her like waking up and going insane and pulling out a bone and beating herself in the head. You know, right. Like, I mean, that's almost like a zombie movie scene, you know, it's just right. it's grotesque. So that could be me. Um, that, you know, I, I could go that route. So she, um, she's not afraid to die and she's thought about it. Give me, give me. And she say, mm -hmm. she's, um, she's, she's on it. Also, she shows up at Friar Lawrence's with a knife, right? Mm -hmm. And says, don't tell me there's a problem. Tell me there's a solution or else me and my friend here are going to solve the problem. The umpire, right? will you yep. know, umpire between these options here. Um, and then when Friar Lawrence says, oh, I have a solution for you as long as you're not too afraid to take it. And she's like, don't tell me about fear. You know, right. Tell me not. Um, tell me not about fear. So that, that I think is the, is, is the, uh, the obvious, I think it's crucial <clears throat> because what she has that you can dig into is she understands, she has an understanding of the conditions under which, uh, life is no longer worth living. That is, uh, that's, that's a deep thought. Um, right. Because all the dominoes that have to fall for this to work out, right? You have messengers, potions, funerals that later end up being a rescue. And mm -hmm. you have to flee to the town next door, to Mantua. I mean, as we learned with the, the plague that <laughs> blocked, not to spoil Act 5, Romeo and Juliet. But, you know, I mean, so many things have to work out. Right. You know. Right. But she's so horrified. And I like the opening lines to of act four where she 
you know, Romeo, uh, Juliet in love is sweet. Mm. Juliet not in love is kind of harsh. Yeah. Uh, she, <laughs> right. she gives it to Paris. It's, I mean, it's, it, it, it's awesome. You know, her, her lines to him of just, of just rejection. And there was, I don't know, there was a couple lines that seemed really poignant mm. to me in that, um, you know, Paris says, you know, she's witty. Uh, Fire Lawrence said, are you come to confess to me? What answer that I would have, or, or Paris says that come you to make confession. She says, well, to answer that, I'd have to confess to you. Like right. I have something to confess. I'm not telling you, who are you? Exactly. Well, don't deny to him that you love me. Um, I will confess to you that I love him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, the other day I, I, in, the, in a previous podcast, I mentioned that when they early on in their relationship, numerous times, Romeo and Juliet are finishing each other's sentences. They're building sonnets in their speech. They're finishing 10 line yep. blank verse. And I'm looking at act four, scene one. And you can just look down the page and Paris has a line. Happily met my lady and my wife. He's so lame. Juliet, that may be, sir, while I may be a wife. They're just speaking in like blunt, literal tensile. Yeah. They're not reading each other. Yeah. They're not finishing each other's thoughts. No. They're not connected in any way emotionally. No. But Shakespeare is smart enough to make that disconnection clear in the way the lines are built. Yeah. Yeah. Also. Uh, that's, Which I think you can feel watching a good performance of it. Yeah. She's almost replying with the denial of everything he says. They're almost contradictory statements. Mm. You know, um, not quite, but pretty close. Yeah. But I like that at the end, there's a self-effacing line. And one thing I've liked about and appreciate about Juliet is her connection to reality. Um, and another colleague in our department has pointed out, he thinks that in all of Shakespeare, what's really at stake is um, what's real and what's fake you know mm. what's not real we were talking about that in the context of hamlet but he feels like it's here and juliet is is connected to it i like in line 34 she says that is no slander sir which is a truth and what i spake um i spoke it to my face mm. all right which and, and what she had said is that the tears hadn't much harmed her face she wasn't that pretty you know to begin with and then Paris takes that ownership line. Thy face is mine, and thou hast slandered it. And she says, "Well, maybe so, because the face isn't mine. Yeah, uh, it's not my own." And that, to me, is so much as of of what's of, of of what's at stake here is her taking, being, you know, what is what is hers, and being being herself and being her own. And I think that's that point of that the the conditions under which life is not not worth living for her. If she can't make good on her vows, if she's forced to play a role that violates her conscience, violates her, maybe something other than conscience, this, this sense of committed love, you mm. know, that she's experienced in Romeo, she's not going to do it. She's not going to just make a deal with bad luck right. and, and roll on, uh, roll on with life because just being alive is, you know, is the goal. And um, being alive in not, Verona, I wonder, that's really interesting, the notion of her being kind of someone who's fighting for authenticity for what the truth is. It's probably a world where rivalries go unexplained, hatred and murder in the street. We're not really sure where it's born. We know it's an ancient grudge. Her father is a very impulsive person. I might mention him later. Um, it might be the sort of thing where she's exactly the kind of person who's going to really prioritize authenticity and truth because there's so little of it in her life. Yeah. Yeah. It's like someone and, raised in a totalitarian regime. They're going to look for something that's, yes, you know, and it authentic. Yeah. And, and, and the authentic thing is herself, you know, is their selves. Mm. We've talked about this last time, Romeo's self she'll swear by and, and is, and is herself that she won't violate. They, it doesn't take sort of cheap shots at the constructs of society, you know, which, which are always there to be shot at. And it reminded me of, I read this book over break, another of our colleagues suggested a convenience store woman. Yeah, uh, I have it. I have it by Sayaka Morata, if I'm saying mm -hmm. that right. Japanese, you you liked Jap it, right? I liked it a lot. It's a Japanese novel, uh, just recently translated into English, um, presumably. This is, I mean, I think, just recently uh, translated into English. This was a novel about a woman who plays a cog in the great wheel of society. You very, mm -hmm. very easily you know, see it this way. But the twist in the novel is that she belongs there. She's self evidently openly that thing she works at a convenience store and she's in her 30s and has always just worked at a convenience store but she loves it there and it's a world that she thrives in and enjoys sure. in all the ways you know that, that are played out um hmm. 
but I thought of this like, but but what what you walk away from with her is you do not pity her, or feel sorry for her because she is she is herself. She is a and and they build all these other people around her who have better jobs, more important sure. people with more important lives. I have to read it, Paul, and all this right. But she's but but she's um, she's more developed than them. Yeah, you know, while being superficially you know, uh, socially beneath, beneath him. I mm. see a little connection there with, with, with Juliet. Yeah, She's going to hang on to that tiny thing. Yeah. Uh, it's not tiny. Well, it's not a tiny thing, even if the concert. So, you know, being subject to her father, subject to Paris, the, the, the marriage, all these cons, cons, constrictions, um, fine. But what she has to preserve, um, is, you know, is, is the truth in herself, mm. you know? Um, and, and, and that's what she's willing to, that's what she's afraid of. Yep. You know, she's not afraid of death. There's something worse than that is right. the loss of the, the only thing that matters. You know, right. I don't know. I like ev- evocations of that. You know, that's yeah, hard absolutely. To, that's hard to put on the page in a believable way for me. And so but Dickens has a line. I think it's in Great Expectations, but I could be wrong about, you know, there's nothing that a young person perceives more keenly than an injustice. <laughs> yeah. And those of us with kids know, you know, oh, if you deny him yes. the fifth Oreo, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, but she has a really keen sense, I think. And there's no speech about this in the play. It's like one of those great unwritten scenes. But I like what you're saying. And I, yeah. About yeah. her. I, it probably wasn't common for 13-year-olds to you know, critique adult society. This isn't the world where that happens. <laughs> yeah, but you wonder if you gave her truth serum. You know, tell us what you think about the rivalry. If you had to guess between yeah. the two families, where did it start? Yeah. Or what do you think about... Who loves you the most of all the adults in your life? And what yeah, do you, you know, right. what does that mean? What is, what, you know? Yeah. So those are, those are malicious questions from the present that we, that we want to pose right, back exactly, to the past. Exactly. To impose ourselves on yeah. it, you know? But, but in terms of teaching a play, teaching teenagers, yeah. Yeah. you know, if they can see, I don't think this is the only thing one does with something like Romeo and Juliet, but if, if you have students in front of you who are not inclined to try to even enter into this book outside of passing quizzes on it, yeah, to show them that the, the trap that they're in as 14-year-olds, because they have limited agency, is in any way similar to a fictitious 13-year-old Italian girl. Yeah. If they can make that connection, um, lots of things are possible imaginatively. Yes. So, yeah. I don't know. In, including the continuation of our chosen field of study. <laughs> Like, including our families having health insurance. Exactly right. Exactly. That literature is real. That works. <laughs> Thank yeah. God. All right. Um, I like that as an uh, opener. Um, I don't know. What did you find? There's not a lot. As I said, 412 lines here. Mm-hmm. But as you you know, sift through them, is there something subtle? Yeah, I have a weird one. Out? Oh, good. I, this good. is really I weird. weird. <laughs> but I love it. I love that he does this. It's Act 4, Scene 5. Okay. Uh, I don't love that Juliet dies. But it's right after they discover... Juliet's, uh, Juliet's body, and there's a series of wildly over the top. Oh, sad day. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I just wrote on Mars and uh, Where were these people? Yeah. You know, a week right. ago. Right. You know, you didn't love your kid enough to. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the fact that there's a comic relief scene, but I think <laughs> it's more than that. Oh, good. I want to hear you talk about this because I was rereading that and just kind of like, ah, I just kind of skipped over it. I thought I should think about this, but I'm not going to. So you got right. to give us So, and I might be overreading this. It's an occupational hazard. Right. But so in the middle of Act 4, Scene 5, Line 106, okay. it says, Enter Peter. Right. Actually, before that, um, let me find where they enter. Um <clears throat> So they, they enter, and the first musician in line 102 says, uh, we may put up our pipes and be gone. Yeah. Now, what's being said? I'm a musician. That's my other job. I get paid right. to do that. Uh, my wife and I sing at a lot of weddings and funerals and baptisms. We've done And when you're working a wedding yeah. or working a funeral, everybody in the room, it's the most important day of their life. And to be perfectly honest... You cannot get emotionally involved if you're working because you're working. Yeah. Okay. Right? Right. You can't get sucked into the vortex of the emotions because right. you have a song to sing in two minutes. You have to make sure your guitar is right. in tune. You have to make sure that right. Shakespeare 
I think because of his upbringing, his dad was in sales, right? His dad was a glover. Yeah. He knew lots of different <laughs> kinds of people. Right. I, I'm, and this is a pattern in the play. <laughs> okay. Pattern in, the, in, in Shakespeare in general. That you'll be in the middle of this vital, crazy, core moment. And he'll remember who might be on the outskirts of town doing something. He knows that if there's a wedding being planned, of course there would be musicians. Of course there would be. Mm-hmm. Of course. And here the musician says the logical thing, oh, bride's dead, we'll leave. Right? That makes sense. <laughs> but then the other musician um, says the, the case may be amended. And then they start talking about the songs they're going to play at the Merry Dump, which is Dump is a sad song. Merry Dump is a paradox. What they're trying to figure out is, and this is what I love. This is, I don't talk about this scene with the kids because it's not the yeah. first time you read Romeo and Juliet. This probably isn't the most vital thing. Right. The musicians remind us that there's a world around every tragedy that's just making money, right? <laughs> they're there for a gig. And you know what happens when the bride dies? The set list changes. It's not going to be a wedding, a funeral yeah. thing maybe, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not vital to play. No one's going to be writing it. But I just think of, you know, the porter at Macbeth's gate. Of mm. course, there's probably going to be a guy drunk opening the gate. And he's going to say some things. Of yeah. course. Now, the king just was assassinated. Uh, why are we thinking about that? You know why? Because there's other people in the world. Yeah. That's why. And Shakespeare's yeah. eyes are always there. And the, the, <laughs> the apotheosis of this, the best example mm-hmm. of this in all of Shakespeare is 5-1 of Hamlet with the Gravedigger. Yeah. One of my favorite characters right. in all of literature. <laughs> but, you know, you forget. And, and a great Someone has moment. to do that job. All these yeah. corpses and tragedies, that's the only play, I think, yeah. where you have a guy dig in the actual hole. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? And right. he has purpose and, and intellect and yeah. complaints. And so <laughs> I just love the, and it's I, I looked. I can't find a production where this is included. Yeah, that occurred to me. I've never, I don't right. teach I've this, I don't read it. It's I've never always seen edited it. out because you don't need it. Yeah. You don't technically need it. I just want to point out to people who are wondering yeah. um, what's surprising in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Why do Shakespeare, why do we care about him more than so many other people? There's a million answers to that question. I would argue one of the answers to the question is, is that his eyes are both on the core of stories and on the margins of whatever kingdom or village or place you're at. He's always, he sees everything. That's so, it's so good. That's a great perspective. And that's a good take on this, you know, like, what do you do with it? Um, but maybe start by feeling it out and then, yeah, yeah. Make this connection across Shakespeare that he's looking in the corners. You know, think of, think of COVID, which is the world we've occupied for quite some time. Yeah. Too long. Um, and I'm not even going to be dramatic, Yeah, but like. I, I know somebody who owns a pizza shop and since restaurants have closed, yeah, she has this perfect thing where she makes great pizza, just takeout and she's making a killing. Yeah. I shouldn't say it that way since I'm talking about COVID, but, <laughs> but obviously she has a good heart. Obviously she right. would rather not have COVID, but you know what else this is? A job opportunity. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. I'm sorry, but right. like, yeah, it's an economy. Think this of Zoom. Would you like to be an executive at Zoom? Yeah, who ever heard of Zoom? Right. Before a year ago. Right. And now it's the I bane of like our existence. If now. I hear it again, I'm going to die. Right. You know? But I mean, the people that work for Zoom obviously didn't see this coming, you know, years ago. But yeah. So anyway, I just, I just find, I love that about Shakespeare that you never know who's going to have a voice next, yeah. ever. And, and it's not, so it's not a throwaway in that sense. Like, it's actually funny, you know, like I, I noticed a lot. What say you, James Soundpost? You know, like, yeah, that's like on a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, talking to each other. Yeah. Hang him, Jack. Come on. Let's go. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, They're kind of street kind musicians, of right? Who are yeah. hired to play the gig and the muse, the set list changed. They're all like, oh, man, you know. Yeah. We'll hang out for the food. Let's go. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've been in conversations, not at the end of Shakespearean tragedies, but where something happens and there's a last minute change and it's the super emotional thing for maybe a family. Like my, I was, my wife and I did a wedding and moments before the wedding, a old lady came up and said, you know, my brother-in-law who the wedding, the funeral was for, I should say it was a funeral. Uh, he danced at his wedding to this song and do you know it? And, and we ended up, we, we knew it and we played it. <laughs> but to me it's, I'm doing a service for X amount of dollars right. and I have to be dispassionate. 
right. these musicians. Yeah. They're not reading Romeo and Juliet. Oh. They're wandering around. They get hired to do a gig. Yeah. The gig changed. Yeah. 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 Bride woke up dead. It's, yeah. Man, it, this, this play we love and get sucked into, and we're rooting for people in this fate and yeah. hatred and sword fights. But there's a whole world that doesn't care about these people at all. And it's just funny. It's so and true. It, and, and it's almost a taunting of skill and power too as a writer, you know, <laughs> yeah. to be able to throw this scene in and control. Love it. So in control. That's a good way of putting so it. So in control. And I, 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 I love that. All right. That's good. That's good. Subtle, but poignant. And, and it's something maybe, you know, that, 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 that you could do is take that point that you're making and look throughout, like use it as a filter to read, to reread the play, you know, and to look, to see how it's looking into the corners and other scenes. Um, and so that's valuable. Um, that's, um, that's really valuable. Um, yeah, I've got, you know, I didn't stray too far in my subtle but poignant um, from my obvious but crucial. Um, and uh, the, the, the subtle builds off of the obvious. You know, the obvious, I said, Juliet's not afraid to die. My subtle is, I was thinking, you know, was thinking about the point one. Well, what is she afraid of um, then? You know, what drives her? Because Friar Lawrence plays off of this. The only way he's going to, uh, send a poison potion home with the, you know with with Juliet as if there's something really desperate uh, here to fix and she's got a knife in one hand you know so in a way she's got a gun to his head um, uh, you know that I feel like kind of drives this uh, a little bit because she's gonna go either way even even that night before the speech you read she lays the knife down beside her and says what if this doesn't work well right. oh don't worry about it I got this so I'm not gonna marry you know Paris either way. But I just found two lines, you know, that I don't know, again, not to not to get. Uh, well, I take him kind of seriously. Page 181, when she comes to um, uh, that's sack four scene one uh, right there at the end of the page in the Folgers just edition here. You know, it's line 66. Yeah. Uh, good to know issue of the true honor bring. But uh, but be not so long to speak. I long to die. If that thou speak is not of a remedy. Hmm. Um why does she long to die? You know, so my first point was that she's not afraid to die. She, she longs to die. Then 183, um, uh, next page, next page over, um, when she says, she says uh, line like 88, and I will do it without fear. I will do it without doubt to live an unstained wife to my sweet love. And so what does she dread? What is she, what is she afraid of? I think in, you know, the subtle thing here, maybe it's not all that subtle, is that what, what, what she dreads is this, you know, this violation of her, this violation of her marriage vows. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of times, and why it seems subtle to me, I guess, is because I think a, a lot of times I took it as like desperation to be with Romeo. But I think what I'm, you know, what I'm seeing now that's subtler is, the other side of that exact same coin, which is to not be uh, with Paris, to in mm. no way, <laughs> like she's looking down the barrel oh. of having oh. to do something that she does not see a good way out um, at all, and she will not do it. The she most is comically not boring character going ever. To do <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which. <laughs> Yeah, which you, I, I waver between feeling sorry for the boring, you know, yeah. uh, Paris. And then in that scene, you know, that we that we read when he's at Fire Lawrence is there in 4 1, you think, oh, yeah, this guy's a punk. Dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> but he's he's a cog, you know, talking yeah. about a cog in the, in the machine yep. of society. He, he doesn't have a distinct identity. He's just rolling on with yeah. what, you know, with, with what Juliet's dad is rolling on with and what, um, yeah, uh, just just moving along, and that's the great crime. I think it's the great sin that uh, in this, if there is one in in this play, it, it's certainly not suicide. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's not being a self, not being a person. You know, and Paris is is, is 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 just not, and Juliet is not is not going to do that. He is she is not going to um, uh, to violate uh, to violate her her marriage. I, and I guess that's a, to live an unstained wife. You know, mm. to my to, to my sweet love. Um, so she's, yeah, she's not going to take that on. So I think that was, that, that was the subtle, I guess the subtle, you know, the, the, the subtle point was, was, well, what is she afraid of? And it's yeah. not of not being with Romeo exactly, but it's of being with, um, Paris, you know, of doing what everybody's expecting her to do. Yeah. 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 Of just rolling on with it and not in her own weakness, 
like we experienced, you know, we fall into just doing what everyone expects you to do out of, you know, right. just whatever. It's just easier or cowardice or something, but mm-hmm. just, but out of force, you know, she's being forced, mm-hmm. forced into this in this tight little chess match, you know, that she's yep. a, that she's a, a piece on, but she pulls herself out of that. Um, and, uh, you know, thus I defy the, or then I'll defy these stars that Romeo's going to say later, yep. you know, that she's, she's doing that same thing. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe that the subtle point is, is what exactly is her dread? It's not that, it's not that nightmarish horror scene in the sepulcher on the beer. Uh, it's, it's the wrong life. Yeah. It's the wrong life. Yeah. And, and, and for all that is not in her power, that is fully in her power yeah, good uh, point. To, to, to avoid though. Only in a macabre and horrific way. Like, right. It's fully in your power if you're willing to stab yourself to death. Right. So, you know. Yeah, therapists in Verona at the time would have done very well. <laughs> so, yeah. Friar Lawrence said, yeah. what to you? He gave you what? <laughs> da, 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 he made yeah. you go where? <laughs> Let me get another notebook. Let's just back up. <laughs> I, I think we'd be a mandated reporter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Some student came up you to us and said, call. I just, uh, yeah. I had this guy telling me, you know, yeah. 42 yeah. hours. How about that? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So you got to be careful about this as we're teaching this literature. You know, there, it does remind me of that story of our other colleague. We seem to be mentioning a lot of colleagues today who uh, read uh, with his class, was it Walden Pond or Self-Reliance or something, mm-hmm. you know, American Lit and, the, and under the inspiration of which is oh, a true story. And, Remember that? And he just left. Yeah, like, he just left. <laughs> I mean, that's really reading closely. He just got in the car yeah, yeah. and ran away from home. He's yeah. going to live. He's going to go be We're going to be careful. Those yeah. of you who are teachers, pay attention to your reading list. No, there's so many. I mean, Shakespeare is just over and over again. Like, don't do this yeah. at home. Please do not try this at home. <laughs> right. Um, right. What about nagging questions, Paul? Well. Just things that are uh, hanging on. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess maybe maybe I ask about Friar Lawrence. Um, should he should he carry on the ruse at this point? Yeah. Should should he have carried on with that? He has choices. He has choices. Yeah. And and he's smart and powerful. Could he have told Juliet a different story, uh, you know, and, and 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 pulled her you know back from the edge? You or know, gone to her father and said, "Look, she's already married. It's yeah. done. It's worth. It's done." How about calling it right then. Just right. blow the whistle. The you know, throw in the towel. The fight's right. over. This is getting way too bloody. Um, and my, you know, what is he afraid of? Dovetailing off what you just said about Juliet, it'd be really Good interesting question. to get a, this another soliloquy that wasn't written is what Friar Lawrence is really afraid of. Yeah. That would be really interesting to see. Because, you know, the only thing we established in the last, you know, podcast, and many people, you know, I mean, you see it on the page, is that he's trying to unite these, sure. you know, unite these families. Well, that's over, right? As we said last yep. last time, that's not going to happen, at least not for a lot longer now, right. another generation because of the death. So that's not on the table. So with that gone, then what are we doing? Right. The only thing I can come up with is he's saving Juliet from stabbing herself to death. But he saves Romeo from stabbing, from stabbing himself to death. Right. right. By kind of smacking him around. Like, right. get yourself together, man. And questioning his manhood, by the yes. way. Which no one ever has to question Juliet about her womanhood or her strength. But yeah. you have to constantly do it with Romeo. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. He's always like uh, on the edge of losing, right? You know, losing himself, right? Right. Yeah. So I don't know. So I'm throwing that out there. That's my that's my nagging question. Should um, you know, it kind of ruins the play in a way. Like maybe you sure. say, you know, all right. Well, that's not a fun question. But <laughs> but but maybe the way you articulate Jay articulate it is a good way to say it. Like, what is what is Friar Lawrence's, um, you know, chip in this game at this point? Yeah. Um, not sure. Not sure. My, uh, my nagging question is, uh, this is a, a teacher question, uh, a reader question, and I never know where to land on it. Mm-hmm. When I look at the Capulets as parents, and particularly Lord Capulet as a father, um, how does the play create a sort of set of guidelines for how I'm supposed to judge him? Because I can't judge him like a sensitive politically correct 21st century dad who can talk about feelings like this is this is a long time ago in a galaxy far far away that's right but there's some complex weird things he tells parents win her heart like there's almost the sense that he has some modern impulses um he calls her awful things at another location baggage and such and i want to look at just a couple of little moments 
when he finds her dead, he does say the sweetest flower in all the field and all like some really yeah. beautiful moments. But then it's um, and then it's uh, I'm uh, you know I'm wailing. Um, let's see, death is my son-in-law. Death is my heir. Yeah. I will die and leave death all. Um, and I just want to get to this other moment. Um, oh, child, my soul and not my child. Alack, my child is dead. And with my child, my joys are buried. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, like I said, I'm, I'm super conscious talking to friends like you and talking to kids that yeah. I can't read this like it's the current day. I mean, right. it's not fair. Right. That being said, um, I don't... If Juliet is just what I think she is, which is a vehicle to create children, uh, and, 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 and the notion, and this is a cliche to say, but students need reminding. Marriage for love is a new idea. Um, mm -hmm. I just started Pride and Prejudice with my seniors. Same deal. And that's, yep. you know, 18, what, 12 or 13. So it's yeah. a couple hundred years later. Mm -hmm. Marriage for love, not the point of marriage. The point of marriage is to continue a line. Right. That's the point. And that's to be right. financially secure. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess my nagging question is, um, are the Capulets' parenting struggles cultural, like relegated to the context? Or are they hints that there's some more substantial brokenness that's affecting Juliet in her life? So I'm wrestling with that. Uh, what do you mean? Some more substantial brokenness in the family? Well, it, it, I just think of a man who talks to Juliet the way he does when he's upset. I've been upset with my 19-year-old daughter plenty. I know you have an angelic disposition. <laughs> Your wife told me you never get upset. Right, okay. right, go on. So you'll just have to trust me on this, Paul. Okay, no, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I've said some things I, I, I apologize for later, but I, I never went to the yeah. ad hominem attack mode right, right. with my teenager, you know. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the words he uses are property words. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. And, and, if, and then looking at how he talks about her death, I'm, so I'm wrestling with, I haven't landed one side or the other. I'm just wondering about maybe the thing that stood out about Romeo is he was the only, there was the only relationship she felt in her life that wasn't transactional. Yeah. Right. And that would, if you grew up in a house with parents that talk to you this way, that would be weird. It would be light in the darkness. Yeah. But I don't, I'm, I haven't landed on it. I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that's a tough one. I like those lines. I reread those. I know what you're talking about. They're striking. Mm. You know, and there's another one there that I wrote. I didn't really work this out, but I thought this might be an opportunity for something is down at the bottom of page 189. Um, when Juliet. Uh, comes back and apologizes yeah. to her father. This is the first one line that stands out to me is, uh, I think this is the only lie that she tells in the book. Henceforward, am I ever ruled by you? Usually she says things, <laughs> <laughs> usually she says, says things that can be, you know, that can be read a couple of different uh, ways. It's a teenage girl who knows what her father wants to hear. Is yeah. What that is. Yeah. All of us that have teenagers know they, they know the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a few yeah. lines later, she, 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 she tells the, 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 the subtle line that can be read several different ways that she tells a lot. It's not an out and out lie, which I think that line is when she says, I met the youthful, uh, Lord Paris at Lawrence's cell and gave him what become a love I might not overstepping the bounds of modesty. No, I already did that with the <laughs> I other guy. I should say not, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah There's only so didn't. much modesty I can overstep in she a day. Didn't, she certainly didn't overstep the bounds <laughs> of modesty. <laughs> but down at the bottom there, um, after all this happens, Capulet reads this. I mean, it's funny. He says, I'll play the housewife for this once. You know, he starts scurrying about, we'll move the, move yeah. the wedding up. I'll stay up all night and cook and get this, get this yeah, show yeah. going. He's so and by excited. the way, like he's going to do anything. He's yeah. going to yell at a few people. Yeah. 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 And, and anything he does will have to be undone. You know, yeah. <laughs> but there are two husbands doing this podcast <laughs> right now. Just being clear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he says at the end, I thought of this, uh, this is the thing I thought, you know, this is that, uh, you know, that New York Times bestseller book, you know, that lasts for a month, but has a clever title. Um, My heart is wondrous light since the same wayward girl is so, re so reclaimed. 
Um, it sounds like he thinks he's in Jesus' mm. parable of the prodigal son. Yeah, you know Ooh, that's good. That's and, a good and here my you know my wayward son you know has has come back home. But it's it's like an aversion of that. Mm. Uh, a she's not a son; it's a daughter. B she didn't run off to spoil the family fortune like he sure. thinks. Right, like if you and start he's not metaphorically out, God the Father at all. <laughs> <laughs> right, but he thinks he is. He thinks he is. So if you play that out in like an, a, you know, in like a mirror image, I yeah. bet that would, I bet that would work. I bet you could take that a little ways. That's you know? a that's an academic paper that yeah. somebody has to write. Yeah, yeah, that might be that that, that might be fun. Seriously, and, yeah. And it may, you know, it may, yeah, really, it could be a paper for for a student too. But it may be, it may also touch on what on what you're talking about uh, about how to read the father, how he sees mm. himself. Because I think there are some things common to fathers, you know, that you could find on yep. everybody, but you could still find in the world. Sure, um, sure. Oh, that, you know, that touched down. But to see her as the anti-prodigal mm. is kind of a cool yeah. thing, you know. She's actually bringing the family back together, bringing the home back together. Like, is yep. he the prodigal? I'm not sure. Maybe that's some of that brokenness, you know, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, know. That's good. That was just a late <clears throat> thought, you know, that came in. So yeah. it might be something to work on. See, there was stuff in Act Four. I know we actually did talk about stuff. Yeah, there we? was stuff in it. It's just it strikes me that the iconic moments that are in every film version and play version, none of them live in Act Four. Not a one. All the other acts have them. You know the yeah. Romeo and Juliet posters in English teachers' classrooms and yeah. memes and like right. they all live in Acts One, Two, Three, and Five. All of them. So yeah. it was it was kind of interesting looking at the act with none of the famous things. Yeah, even but it's the, still vital. I mean, it's it's the thing that propels us to the end. Yeah, even in the Zeffirelli uh, film, which is the best in my my opinion, the the, the scene you know we we spent time on just isn't there. Juliet just drinks mm -hmm. the poison. You know, none, yep. of, none of her lines, that development of herself in there, you know, isn't there. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I think that gets us through uh, through Act Four. Yep. Man, we're ready. We're queued up. There's only three scenes left, right? No. Act Five. I wonder what's going to happen at the end, Paul. I'm not reading ahead. That goes along with my rule of not <laughs> reading commentators. I have no idea. It's like so. when I went to see the Titanic and I told my students. <laughs> they said, "You're going to see the Titanic." My first year of teaching. Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, I just want to see how it ends." And about <laughs> half of them laughed, and the other half had no idea what was going like, on. Like I'm switching sections. <laughs> well, all right. Hey, Jay, it was great. Uh, see you next time on uh, nice. Act Five, huh? See you, Paul. Thank you. All right.